0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Now our episode today is another installment in our series on food and food systems and food movements, and we will include links to all of the really interesting and diverse range of conversations that we've had this year along these lines. And our guest today, Matting Pudelis, was first introduced to me by my friend and Blister reviewer, Paul Forward. Mating is the founder of hunt to eat which is a really interesting organization that exists to, and I quote, find modern, progressive, and inclusive ways to support and grow the community of folks that go outdoors, that harvest wild meat or plants or fungi and take these things home to be cooked with care for themselves or their friends and family. The folks that see the importance of wildlife and nature. This community is not defined by race, politics, education, wealth, or gender. It's simply a human community hunting, fishing, foraging, and existing in nature are things that human beings have done to survive since the dawn of our evolution. Everyone who exists in nature is part of the hunt to eat community, and it can only grow from here. End quote. Now, many of you wrote in to say how much you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Forward, and if you did, then I am confident that you are going to enjoy learning more about hunt to eat. So with that, let's go ahead and get to my
1: conversation with Matting.
0: Well, Matting, how are you today and where are you today?
1: I am wonderful and I'm in Denver, Colorado, which is my home base for the last about 12 years. Well, cool.
0: Well, I am certain this is going to be an interesting conversation and we should talk a little bit about the way that you and I got connected is through Paul Forward, So tell me a little bit about how you came to know Paul.
1: So I believe that um, somebody just recommended Paul to me. Yeah, we just started having a conversation actually about hunters for climate, people that want to talk about climate change and how it's affecting wildlife and what that means for hunters. Um, and so that's a big project that Paul and I are actually working towards kind of outside of Hunt to Eat, actually. Yeah, just getting to know that he's a doctor and that he skis a whole bunch and that he's a, you know, super badass longbow hunter. Um, all those things kind of made me say, hey, man, like you want to be a Hunt to Eat ambassador? Like you're you're right up our kind of target market for for one of those folks that does really cool things. So and then it's a highly intelligent person. Yeah, is another part of that. So, Yeah. So I'm really just getting to know him.
0: That just all made me feel kind of bad about myself. <laughs> when you spell out <laughs> all of Paul's good characteristics, it just, yeah. No, and we're the running joke around here is that our managing editor, Luke Kappa, still thinks that uh, Paul's not a real person. He's just, <laughs> he's just <laughs> we've just made him up. Because, yeah, Paul is like staggeringly cool in a lot of ways. Yep. Yeah. But yep. he's also, to be fair, he's also a dork in a lot of ways too. Not that cool and dork, I would not call those like, you know, incompatible things, but there is a true dork side to Paul. Let's just keep it
1: real. I think that most people think of like the mountain man in Alaska and they go, oh, he's just like super rugged. Yeah. He just, he just, just like grunts. Would, yeah, grunts and through brute strength gets through it all. And that's like, if you've ever hung out in Alaska in a place where you have to be super self-sufficient, you would know that having a major dork factor and being highly intelligent is actually a huge part of that versus just like, yes, you got to grunt through like lifting a log and like building a house or whatever. But if you don't know the smarts of like, how animals act and how certain things, you know, just like, like how to fix an engine and all that stuff, like you're not going to survive in Alaska. So
0: yeah. Helps to be smart in, in terms of staying yes. alive.
1: Yes, yeah. very much so. Very much so.
0: Okay. So you have a company called Hunt to Eat. Talk to me a little bit about what motivated you in the first place to start this.
1: So my background is not in being a t-shirt mogul. I actually, seven years ago when we started, I had no idea what happens in t-shirt printing. So my background is actually in adventure education. I was a climbing guide slash worked for a bunch of colleges and private schools and stuff teaching outdoor education. So that's the kind of the, the frame of mind that I came into hunting with. And while I grew up in a hunting family, I didn't actually hunt until I was 23 or 24. And so... I had very much a Patagonia ethos, if you can call that, right? I think that's a, if I say that out loud, I think a lot of folks will know, like, if you're in the outdoors and you follow what Patagonia does, you kind of get what I'm saying. So that's my ethos going into hunting. And I just didn't see that kind of that vibe being shown in the hunting community um, anywhere. I mean, you walk into the big box stores you still walk into the big box stores because we haven't quite landed there yet, and what you see there is just not anything that I'm proud to wear. Um, not only not proud to wear as a hunter, but disturbed, and the quality is just garbage. Like uncomfortable t-shirts printed with uncomfortable plastisol inks, um, and I'm just like not down with it. So I really wanted to see a Patagonia-esque t-shirt, like. And that was super comfortable that I actually wanted to wear um, and like have it represent me as a hunter. So, yeah.
0: Well, before we dive further down that path, let me back it up for a second again. And you mentioned like you were a climbing guide. Yeah. What else kind of was a part of your, I don't know, outdoor activity repertoire?
1: So for a lot of years, really, like when I went to college, I went to Presley College down in Arizona. So like, smallest little hippie school down in Arizona. I just was a climber. Um, I climbed 300 days a year down there. Just that's all I did.
0: What kind of climbing are we talking about?
1: Bouldering. I mean, bouldering, sport climbing, trad climbing. I grew, I mean, I really like cut my teeth at Granite Mountain, which is kind of, you know, it's small, but it's very, I'll call it Yosemite-esque granite, super sandbagged routes all that stuff. So that's where I learned. And yeah, I kind of just kept on that train. So I would go, you know, I'd work for two weeks in Joshua tree, like, you know, with some anywhere from like fifth graders to college kids. So run a course for two weeks and then I'd just kick it for two weeks and live out of my van and go climbing every day. Very much just the dirtbag life and did that for, I don't know, seven or eight years (laughs) until we finally realized that you can't live off of uh, that as a the actual, you can't have, you can't have a family or a house off that paycheck. So um, that kind of ended that life.
0: Well, and you recently attempted to run a hundred miles. Like, do you call yourself a runner?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I do. So I went from, um, I'm also like, a, I call myself an addict as well. Um, and I try to be addicted to like the things that are semi-healthy in life and not the bad ones. Um, but that's definitely my mind frame. So when I was a climber, I was just gung-ho into climbing, did it nonstop. And then I had a switch where um, I had a boss that was... And I worked a lot in Southern California and I had a boss that was into road cycling. And so I actually like totally dropped my climbing gear and climbed into a pair of spandex shorts and then raced my bike for the next five years or so and actually like managed a kind of pro-am team here in the uh, That's why i moved to denver or to colorado was to race bikes in boulder and ran the lucky pie bike team up there and yeah like had a budget and tried to travel around the country and race bikes and did that until i got a divorce and at that point i divorced my bike and uh soon thereafter essentially found Well, thanks to getting back into climbing for a hot second, I ended up meeting my wife. And so then she got me into running. So for the last seven years, I've been, I've been running. Yeah. And now she actually doesn't need, she runs a bunch with me. We run, we just went for a run right before this call, but, uh, she, she's run a couple of ultras, but she's not into like the super long distances. But of course, like, as, like I said, I'm into it full, full bore. So
0: you're the, you're the addict runner. she's like the sane, more normal (laughs) runner. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. I I know the type.
1: Yeah. So I had signed up for my, for a, for a race this summer and because of COVID and you know, that the nonsense of that, just everything getting canceled, the race got canceled. And so I decided that I was going to create my own adventure. Um, and I rallied my friends to crew me and, uh, went for it. So I ended up having a, I made like a stupid mistake in the first 30 miles, feeling like a superstar Mm -hmm. and never took any breaks, ended up having a little bit of a knee issue. And so from like, I did the first 30 miles just fine. And then I did the next 50 miles with a gimp or with a limp. I was kind of gimpy and made it 24 hours, 80 miles. And I called it quits.
0: 80 miles.
1: Yeah. 50 with, you know, like limping along. So. power hiked essentially the last 50. So I can't wait to get back at it though. Like once we get through ski season and I'm like next spring, summer, I'll, I'll get back at it. So, so yeah, we were talking about what I love to do. So I will add though, it's funny is that somebody recently asked me, well, if you could go elk hunting or hunting or skiing for the rest of your days and you had to pick one, what would you do? And like, hands down, I would ski pow every single day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I love all those things, but man do I just love skiing. Yeah. It is there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You could yeah. start a
0: second company, ski to eat. I don't really know how that one would work per se, but you know, you can you can think about that.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, all like people just talk about going skiing, like trying to use skis to go hunting. And like Paul might have some of those things in Alaska where you're trying to go after like sheep or goat. But for most of us down here in Colorado, the all the animals move down in elevation when the, all the heavy snows come, and so we just don't have like there's not like a real good reason to go ski and or go tour and try to like go hunt something. So I suppose you could go after some grouse or something, but yeah, it's never been like a, a cross dual sport kind of day.
0: Well, so you know we've been having a number of conversations this year about food and food systems and the like several weeks ago I actually had a conversation with Paul where you know we talked about the fact that you know I am a vegetarian primarily vegan Paul has been a hunter his whole life has been passionate about that he and I actually have like I'm not sure we actually disagree about anything and yet we kind of found that maybe in the current media landscape you don't often have the like mostly vegan person talking to the like committed passionate hunter. And um we got a lot of really good feedback from that conversation and people just saying thank you like for having an honest real conversation and a respectful one. You know, I thought that this would make for an interesting chance to kind of get your perspective on, you know, maybe some of the topics that Paul and I touched on. Maybe a place to start here then is you mentioned like the three pillars that hunt to eat is kind of based on. And I think it might make sense for us to kind of spend some time on each of those three things.
1: Totally. I I will. Before I go into that, I will say that we we often have a lot of folks coming to us. um, We talk to a lot of folks that are vegan, vegetarian, and they wonder kind of what the what the interaction is going to be with us. Um, my wife is a vegetarian outside of the house. I mean, she now eats meat. Um, she just hunted her first antelope. So I call that the, she took the ultimate responsibility. Um, but she's a vegetarian outside of the house and I'm totally okay with it. You guys are probably better than I am about it because I still get suckered into like eating a Burger King Whopper every once in a while. And most people would like cringe at that. And I'm like, yes, but it's got sugar in it and it tastes so delicious. So how could you not? Like, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not preaching like this almighty gospel that it's only that, right? Like I'm, I'm still human. Um, but what I will say is that I think that everybody hunts to eat. I think that in our society, there's definitely most people hunt to eat with their dollar bills. Um, And I think that's a really important conversation to have that people should be aware of is that when you spend dollars at a store, at a farmer's market, wherever it might be, you are you are saying that I'm okay with this food system Um, and you're supporting some sort of food system, whether that's like. Me doing it every once in a while, supporting factory farming by eating Burger King, which is terrible. I get that. Luckily, most of the time, I'm supporting like wildlife conservation in Colorado by hunting my own elk, right? But everybody hunts to eat. It's just that a lot of people do it with dollar bills. And so, no matter if you're going to be like if you're going to be cognizant about what you eat, then do it and support the systems that you think are like healthy for this world. Um, I'm totally for that. So I think that again, I think we align on that probably um, more than we disagree. So three pillars of hunt to eat, community, real food, and conservation. I was once had a researcher actually reach out to me. He was doing some, he was some multinational research firm. They were trying to launch a new type of yogurt, I believe, for some giant corporation. And we got to talking about what, what are the things that we as humans today, like all need or want. I kind of was giving him, him my, you know, my thoughts or whatnot. And he says, you know, what's interesting is that we've been doing this research for a very long time. And it turns out that no matter where you are in the world right now, he was like, Singapore, Moscow, you know, Louisiana, just, it doesn't matter. They've done enough extensive research that what they found is that everybody wants community, real food and a connection to nature. So we call it conservation because we're you know, focused on kind of wild things and wild places and protecting them. But I found that like, I was like blown away by that, that I was like, wow, I mean, that seems to fit what I want too, right? Like I want to be in community. I feel through all of my days when I've, no matter what, it's the climbing community or whatever, like you want to call it tribe, you want to, whatever you know name you want to put to it, having those people that like, Little group around you is really important to all of us. And then, real food I mean, I, I i don't know if it's like a privileged thing. um I think that folks probably in the city are still, I think, you know, people are calling the Hunt to Eat a movement. We actually had that someone say that recently, like, oh, I haven't heard of your company, but I've heard of the movement. And I was like, well, that's awesome. <laughs> Hunt to Eat is now a movement, right? But I think that people are just looking at where their food is coming from, and that is um, something they want to know more about. It's why farmers' markets are so you know prevalent all over the place. And then the nature thing was very interesting. He said the only place where people didn't actually name nature was in uh, in China in a couple of places where people have grown up literally in concrete jungles. and they they had this idea that they were missing something, but they couldn't put a finger on it. And when once it was explained to them that there's this thing called nature, they're like, oh, yes, that is the thing. So I, after that conversation, that was a couple of years ago, that's kind of when we rebranded recently. We really just put that into our tagline because I, I do think it's good business. I also think it's just good that people want to have those things in their life, right? So like, I was like, cool, we'll just jump on that because I, I also want to provide that for folks. Um, and I don't think that hunting has been talking about those things very well in the last 25 years. At least I didn't see it anywhere.
0: Why do you think that is? Like, do you have, I'd like to hear you talk a bit about when you say like hunting writ large in the last 25 years. Do you have thoughts about when many of us maybe who aren't you, who aren't Paul, who aren't part of these very considered or very ethical or very deliberate like i'm not i'm not trying to be pejorative or here at all but yep. like why do you think the hunting world the one that maybe a number of us don't love yeah why did that or how did that culture come to be so predominant
1: marketing what sells like people just had to figure out what sells right because we weren't in a place i think If you look at where we, where, if you go from hunting was, um, you know, in the twenties, thirties, like we essentially banned, um, market hunting, right? So you could no longer go shoot a deer and then sell it to someone. Um, we had decimated the populations, Theodore Roosevelt, all those guys came in and said, we can't do this anymore. We're going to protect the resources. I mean, there were folks like you talked to like 80 year old folks, and they're like, we never saw there was there weren't these whitetail running around willy nilly, like there are all I mean, there's 9 million whitetail, I think in the country right now, like, that wasn't the number, right. So I think we were at a place where this idea that you should care about where your food came from, it wasn't an issue. Right? Like people knew where their food came from. We weren't, the, the large scale agriculture wasn't as big back then as it is now. So in, I would say from like the thirties going forward, we essentially just lost the connection to our food and all these things. Right. So in, in that time frame, people were like, well, what's going to sell? We, we brought the deer back. We brought the turkey back. We brought elk back. I mean, that's all because of hunters essentially saying no more market hunting. You know, we're going to conserve the resource and now we've conserved it so well that they're like, it's abundant and it, it's sold to be like, Hey, you should shoot the biggest, you know, we've got all these things. You should just shoot the biggest thing. Like, Hey, look, you'll be cool if you shoot the biggest thing. And now there still is plenty of that in hunting. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, there's also like, I think people think that's a bad thing. I, I, I'm not going to say carte blanche that it is a bad thing to like, go shoot the biggest thing. Because you have to be really skilled to go sh- find and shoot the biggest thing. Like it's, y- unless you go behind a high fence, which we don't even need to go there. Like I don't support high fence hunting. It's bad. It's bad for the resource, all of that stuff. But to go find a very, you know, like a mature bull in Colorado Like that's not an easy thing. You're it's like PhD level hunting to go do that. So if that's what you want to do, because you've been so successful for so many years growing up, whatever that you want to go chase that guy. Great. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that good yet. Like I just want to have meat in the freezer. So I don't really care what, if he's got antlers on him, I can't eat the antlers. So that's a bit convoluted of an answer, but I think we've just lost connection to food and wild places. And those, you know, the way that, the way that hunting was sold to people was, you know, here's, here's the best, biggest, best thing. Go shoot that buck. That's what you should go do. That just got passed down. I think, um, like there's the the heritage, the legacy of hunting was father to son mostly, you know, sometimes father to, to daughter, sometimes grandmother to, you know, to somebody, but it's definitely male dominated. And we're just seeing so many different folks coming into hunting these days that, and they don't have that familial, you know, entrance into hunting. And so for those folks, none of that old stuff works. Like they're just not into it whatsoever, much like I wasn't when I came into hunting. So those three, so now community, real food and conservation are three things that like, a you know, 30 year old or 40 year old person that's going to start hunting for the first time. They see that and they go, Oh, sweet let's let's talk about those things um let's not talk about big bucks
0: it's interesting so when i i mean i my question was why do you think if it's fair to call it like mainstream hunting yeah. culture looks the way it does you had a one word answer which was marketing yeah and that actually seems right to me right and cuz i started thinking as you were talking about it's like there's been the gamification of hunting yeah and it's like guess what that actually works, right? And we're seeing that term gamification come up in all kinds of different areas. We're seeing it in fitness, right? Strava and KOMs yep. in that area. It's been a big thing in our recent culture with the gamification of investing, right? Mm-hmm. And there has been oh, yeah. certain new companies coming up that are now being scrutinized for like, yo, are you getting people hooked on this, let alone like video game culture itself? Oh, I
1: use I use that I use that app. <laughs> okay.
0: So you know what I'm talking about. And it's oh, yeah, like definitely. so it's like, okay, well, if we're trying to market a sector, we should probably be if you and I were gonna do that, like think about how to gamify, quote unquote gamify it, and we'll probably create some traction. So I think that makes sense. And I think, and now just Speaking for myself, that really is kind of the, I guess I'd say, disgusting part of hunting for me, where we have just completely lost sight of that kind of sovereignty of life, sovereignty Mm -hmm. of the life of that majestic animal or ugly animal, Mm -hmm. like, but like just taking shit down for points. It's like, just go play Atari if that's the motivation or, you know, go try to get a KOM on Strava, but like, let's not kill stuff for that reason. That's kind yeah. of where, and, and I'm sure some people disagree with me on that. Some people would agree with me on that, but I think that's really the line. And I think I, I personally can't get down with that notion of hunting, the trophy, the trophy hunting, but I think you've given us a pretty good idea of how and why that sector of hunting kind of got to be pretty prominent.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I will say, I mean, you like the trophy hunting conversation is always like, it always gets people, right? Because they get caught up on the word trophy, I think. I will say that everybody that I know that's been hunting so long that they now are looking for that one majestic bull that they have, you know, that's bigger than the rest. When they shoot him and when they find him and shoot him, they eat him, just as heartily and just as with just a as heavy as a heart as they did the first one that they ever shot. And, you know, and they share it just as much with their loved ones as they did, you know, any other animal. It just happened to have bigger horns on it. There, Don't get me wrong. I think that there, there are the people that you hear about that, you know, those folks aren't even probably eating the meat that they shoot, which technically, you know, is illegal. Like you're not allowed. If you, there's wanton waste laws that you're not allowed to like shoot something and leave it. Or shoot something and just take the head. That's that's called poaching.
0: So, coming back to kind of the three pillars that you had been talking about, anything else that you wanted to say in particular along those points? I feel like I kind of took us on a bit of a, a different trajectory, but
1: no, I, I also tangented off of like kind of where that idea came from because um, it was it wasn't my idea. Um, I definitely just I borrowed it, but I think that I think that the hunting community offers folks. Um, a very tight knit community. Once folks start talking about how important it is to be related, to have that responsibility to food, you know whether that's because sometimes that happens by yourself and you're solo. Sometimes that happens with like a you know some other friends that are in the field with you. But being able to sit around a table and talk about you know how that hunt went, right? And be able to share the story of an animal and that experience that really, like when I say real food, right, it's like you get, and, and sometimes people are a little uncomfortable with this, but I, I usually press pretty hard of like, yeah, like this is what this animal was doing. Like, this is that hunting story. If you want to eat this meat, you should be okay with hearing this story. Right. And like understanding where this animal came from and what was going on when I shot it or, you know, just all of that stuff I think is important to owning kind of knowing about your food and all of that builds, you know, it just builds around community. And then ultimately the conservation pieces really is that, um, and I don't know if you and Paul talked about this at all, but just that there are taxes that are placed on, um, certain hunting and fishing equipment that go directly to conserving wildlife and wild places. Um, no questions asked if they don't get spent every year, you know, on certain topics, then they go into migratory bird protection. So, you know, that's one thing that I've been slowly championing, championing, um, given my background in, in outdoor ed and kind of outdoor rec is that, you know, hunters, and actually now I'll say, um, I just had a conversation with federal ammunition today. They gave $89 million. They didn't give, they were taxed, $89 million last year, just one company to give back to conservation. Show me another company, an outdoor rec, that has that kind of dollars going back to protecting wild places and wild things. It doesn't happen. Surprisingly enough, I mean, hunters love to actually take credit for a lot of that. And realistically, a large majority of that money isn't actually hunters. It's gun owners. It is the guy who guy and gal who go to the range every weekend with their AR fifteen that a lot of us, you know, don't don't like or whatever, have a strong opinions about. Those folks plinking their ARs at targets, that's what's protecting our wild places and our wild animals. Which is like not something that even I as a hunter want to like really shout from the rooftop, but it's that's the hard honest truth. So I think the outdoor rec community has a bit of uh soul searching to do on kind of how we pay our, way, pay our way, you know, towards protecting these places.
0: That's really interesting. So coming back to Hunt to Eat in particular, what else do you guys have going on?
1: So we, you know, we, we have been for the last seven years, primarily just a merch company, right? We, we make really cool t-shirts, hoodies, hats, whatnot. And, and it's been fun. Our, our people call our shirts conversation starters. So, you know, you look at these, people will see designs from afar and actually just come ask people, "Hey, what's that shirt all about?" which I think is a great opening for, you know, a very small portion of the population to start actually informing folks about hunting. And as we do that, we keep seeing that there are all these folks that are interested in hunting, right? They're interested in where their food comes from. And so as that as we've seen that happen, um, and we've seen certain, there's a bunch of nonprofits that kind of have started the field to fork programs where their, our good f- friend Hank Forrester over at Quality Deer Management Association started and they, they have the name field to fork. They went to a bunch of farmer's markets and they literally just handed out samples of venison and um, s- asked people like, would you be interested in learning how to hunt? And then they launched these programs where they essentially got folks out hunting on these mentor deer camps and so we've seen that happen and we've seen it be kind of successful in hunting we call it r3 which is recruitment retention and reactivation i'm essentially just trying to drive the numbers of hunters up so that we can continue to have the conservation dollars for for wild places and wild things and so i keep seeing it happen here and there and it hasn't been as successful as I think it could be, largely because in a nonprofit space, too many folks are relying on volunteers to make these programs happen, and volunteers just get burned out. And so now after seven years, we are launching into the kind of hunt-to-eat camps. Given my background as a adventure educator, and really a degree in education, it's kind of just hit me out of the blue. I was like, well, why don't we become the knolls of, of hunting? And so we just launched our first mentor deer camp in South Carolina even with COVID happening we were able to you know have a um, a successful camp and bring in folks that wouldn't traditionally be brought into the hunting community and uh like make it honestly make it a sacred space there's something that happened in traditional deer camps that I think a lot of young men had this opportunity to like you know young boys become men with their fathers and this all this stuff happens there they kill their first animal and you know they get a smudge of blood on their forehead or whatever it is and i think that people at large want more ceremony they want that like deep connection to other people to community and to you know to nature like that and i was like cool we're let's let's go full tilt buggy so we just hired on Cindy Stites. Um, She's what she was a hunt to eat ambassador. Um, She's just a rock star of a volunteer, you know, doing 4-H programs and archery programs. And she just was really good. And so I hired her on as our director of education. In 2021, we'll be launching, you know, I don't know exactly how many courses we'll have, um, but everything from partnering with a well-known first aid provider, to do kind of hunting specific first aid. to like week long camps where you get to learn how to go in the woods and shoot something and butcher it and make your first meal. And you don't have to rely on your family to have taught you those things, right? We're going to be providing all that stuff, which is just as, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled beyond belief. I, I hope that COVID doesn't ruin it all. Luckily that it all happens outside. So I think we can, we can be actually pretty successful with, social distancing and all those things and keeping people safe. But yeah, it's uh, it's exciting.
0: Say more a bit about where are these camps going to be taking place? Or is that still some to be determined? And are date windows getting pretty locked in?
1: Yeah. So we will be starting with with turkey season. So the thing about these camps is that they all rely on just kind of living inside of the rules and regulations yeah. that exist in hunting. So For folks who don't know, and it turns out that most Americans don't know this, but hunting is highly regulated, right? You can't just grab a gun and walk into the woods and shoot whatever you want. It is not only do you need a license, you need to have a safety course. Having take, you have to take a safety course. You have to get a license. Sometimes you have to apply for a license. That license is only good for a certain specific animal in a specific place at a specific time frame, I mean it's there's a lot of rules that go around that and for good reason. And so we've got to live inside those parameters. But yeah, we do have private and public spots where we'll be running turkey camps. So turkey hunting happens in the spring. So that's kind of like end of April through May time frame. And those are actually so right now, if I if I had to guess at it, because we've got a couple of different places, um, it'll happen in like Nebraska a few spots in the midwest and probably california potentially in colorado as well so we are going national with this given the hunt eat ambassador crew is kind of 32 strong and they kind of span the they span america you know those are going to be some of the folks leading these courses there will be opportunity essentially i guess across the united states for folks to get to major cities across the country and uh yeah so we'll start there we'll do some stuff in the middle of the summer as well a little bit more fishing focused and then in some places where like texas where you can actually hunt um, some things year round because they're exotics whether it be like pigs or something like that even in California as well it might be a little bit looser on the time frames We'll have those opportunities as well and then come deer season really that'll be like our huge push is to have deer camps around the country Deer is a really good thing because for a lot of folks given the history of hunting you have most landowners are you know they save the what they call the good hunts For themselves and they you know they want to shoot the big buck or whatever that's not our mission right we're teaching people how to put meat in the freezer so it doesn't matter if it has antlers on it or not and so the doe popul i mean the deer populations in general are just so healthy that we're we have a pretty good carte blanche in some places to go shoot honestly as many does as we can take off the landscape hunting is managed in such a way that scientists are out there looking at the landscape and saying cool how many deer are here and how many deer can this landscape hold and a lot of places in the east coast kind of midwest like there's just way too many deer on the on the ground the the place where we did uh, our first camp in south carolina the the state there they give that landowner 90 tags for does And they do their best to try to shoot that many. And they just can't. They, I think last year they shot 50. Not only that, they've got to give it to somebody, right? They've got to like find people to give that meat to, um, which sometimes can be hard. I mean, there are some programs in some states that um, help with that, but you can't let it go to waste. Right. So, so places like that are going to be great for us to be able to, you know, bring in new folks and have them shoot a doe and Take you know 40, 50 pounds of meat home with them and keep spreading keep spreading the love. Venison diplomacy is what we actually call that, um, which is fun. Yeah.
0: So these camps, are you envisioning a specific number of days and or days and nights, or are you thinking we might offer a one day version of this for, and then as well as a five day version of this? Like, how are you thinking about the offerings?
1: Most, most of them will be multi-day, um, at least a weekend. It kind of depends on where we are with, you know, like the South Carolina thing I keep coming back to was the perfect example because the landowner owns 2,000 acres, right? They know they've got all these deer stands set up. They know that in these fields, there's just going to be deer out there every night. So as long as we, and they even have a shooting range on site. So we can walk through in the first day, we can get somebody comfortable with a gun shooting a gun, shooting a gun well. We can put them in a position where they don't have to shoot very far so that they can make a clean and ethical shot, right? Like it's it's definitely a quick progression, but you it also can't be too fast. Like you do need, you know, we showed up there Friday um, or Thursday night and everybody left on Sunday, right? And most people left with a deer in the freezer, but it is definitely a multi-day thing. And then I envision it kind of as like a 101, 201, 301 kind of thing where it's like, you might learn how to shoot your first deer in South Carolina. And then you decide that, you know, a couple years later, maybe you want to come and learn what it's like to go climb a mountain and try to find an elk right on public land. And that might be a, that's going to be a different experience. That's going to be a lot longer of an experience. Yeah. And then having things in kind of the major city centers where it's, you know, butchering class, that's maybe just an evening long, um, or maybe it's like two evenings over the course of, you know, uh, a weekend or whatnot, where you just come and learn how to butcher a deer Um, how to package it up and kind of that kind of thing as well as all of the cooking stuff. And really that's only, that's just the hunting side. Um, When we talk about food, we talk a lot about homesteading these days. Um, And so we've got the whole, gardening side of this kind of raising meat chickens you know you name it in the homesteading scene there's there's a lot for people to learn there as well and like we saw the rise of like victory gar covid gardens this year people want those skill sets are just not something that there's not like not a lot of places to go learn that stuff and so given that we have this company that's you know just open, like we really we're trying to build the community that we want to see hunting be, right? So if you come to our Instagram page, like, you will see people of color. You will see um the LGBTQ community represented. You will not see a lot of gripping grins, right? You will see a lot of food. We're 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 welcoming of everybody. And so in doing that, that we hope that people will kind of stick with us and and get all of this information kind of from us rather than going somewhere else where they maybe don't feel so comfortable because they're not necessarily welcome which unfortunately happens i mean it happened to me i'm like like that's what i when i came into this seven years ago i was like a white privileged dude that came from a hunting back like hunting family and i still didn't feel welcome right because i'm like a definitely a little bit on like the hippie side of things, right? Like dirtbag, climber, whatever. Like I didn't see myself in the community. And so I wanted to create a space where not only I felt it, but if I didn't feel it, then certainly all the rest of those folks didn't feel it too. So so hopefully when people come and check us out, they'll see that we're about all of that um, and more. There's a lot of shirts that we sell that aren't necessarily hunting focused. You might see a design and go, wow, that's just like a really cool image of a pheasant, quail, and cottontail. Right. And like, it's just cool art that we want to share with folks.
0: Man, you talked well about these mentored camps that you're looking to be launching. What else do you have going on? (laughs) I'm guessing the answer is not nothing.
1: It's definitely not nothing. So one of the big projects that we're working on right now is kind of trying to, again, it's trying to bridge the gap between the outdoor rec side of things And the sportsman side of things, um, and how we really have more in common about how we relate to wild places and wild things, um, and where we can learn from one another, um, where hunters can really learn from certain things that, in this instance, climbers are doing really well, and how they're kind of coping with issues. Right, like climbing right now in America is just booming, right, and that has certain issues. Certain issues arise out of that. Hunters it's not booming. Like hunting is like decreasing in its numbers, right? So there's certain things that we can look at and, and learn from one another. And so what we're doing really is that we have a, a film project that'll come out um, in three episodes and then hopefully like a, uh, a film fest kind of full feature length doc. But we've got a gal who lives up in Lander, Wyoming and she's a lifetime hunter. Um, she's a bow hunter primarily. And she lives in Lander, Wyoming, which is a sport climbing mecca um and she had never up until last weekend she had not really ever climbed so yeah so we've so we've got this lifetime hunter um who lives in a climbing mecca and she's never climbed and it's funny because she actually hunts in some of the places where you have all these climbers and so she has a certain relationship to wild places and wild things um and then we have another gal who a lot of your listeners will probably know and uh, I'm not going to give it away now but she's uh she, she, I guess she calls herself a pro climber. She's definitely a pro kind of activist, um, woman leader in the climbing space. And, uh, she, you know, hadn't never shot a gun. I don't know that she was vegetarian, but she definitely just didn't have a connection to hunting. So they're essentially coming together and they are first guiding each other through an initial phase, um, of learning how to, um, how not to hunt and how to climb and ultimately, through the three episodes, you'll see them not only guide each other, but educate each other, and then ultimately partner with each other to learn each other's crafts and, uh, and kind of look at how, particularly in the conservation space, how we can learn from each other um, and kind of how we can work together to protect wild places and wild things. Yeah, so that'll drop in February, probably to be the first episode, and then we'll have a second episode midsummer and the last one down in, at the end of the year. Next year.
0: So, for those who want to learn more about Hunt to Eat, where should they head?
1: Definitely the website is the easiest place, hunttoeat.com. You can find us on Instagram, hunt to eat. Check out the hashtag, hunt to eat. Yeah, I think the website's the best place.
0: Well, hey, man, I appreciate you telling us more about what you've got going on and sharing your perspective. Yeah, and people should definitely go listen to the conversation I had. With Paul Forward, it connects very nicely with what you and I have just talked about. Again, while I I guess technically I'm on the other side of all of this somehow, I am always for people doing things in a thoughtful and deliberate way. And I think you've done a good job of kind of laying out specifically the ways in which you're being thoughtful and deliberate and your real passion for this community and the like, good on you. I can see why these camps could be such an interesting development for the whole, uh, well, clearly for the hunting community, but kind of just for
1: people (laughs) in general, right? Yeah, certainly. Just for people. And I will say, I think, honestly, for your listeners in particular, I really think that coming from... Um, if you're a climber, if you're a mountain biker, if you're a skier, you have such a developed skill set for being out in the woods for, you know, how to backpack, you know, how to be out there. You're not that far away from learning how to add hunting to that, like the hunting skill set and then having a freezer fill, you know, of, of your own, of your own making. So certainly for your listeners, I think it's like a, it's def- that's a big invitation to come check out the camps once, once they're fully launched. Yeah, add that skill set.
0: Hey, man, thanks again for taking the time and uh, appreciate the conversation. Talk to you soon.
1: Okay, absolutely.
0: Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd invite you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast, leave us a nice rating in iTunes, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Ma Ting for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And tomorrow, you should check out our Off the Couch podcast, where instead of co-hosting the podcast with Brendan Leonard, who is the creator of Semirad.com, I interview my co-host and we get to catch up on the new stuff going on in Brendan's life and actually hear about his new FKT. That dude's setting some records. Go Brendan. So subscribe to Off the Couch and check out that new episode tomorrow. Till then, take care and we will talk to you again real soon.